to another episode of the 10th and L podcast brought to you by True North Church in Anchorage, Alaska. My name is Philip Coleman, and I am joined today once again by Ian Johannes. Ian, how are you? I'm doing great this morning. My auto start still works on my truck. It's the first time I've used it since April, and so I'm happy to report that I got into a warm vehicle this morning. Very good. Yeah, we woke up to snow this morning. Uh, it was unexpected for me. I don't know about you. I didn't, I'm not used to no. getting snow on September 21st, but I haven't lived here that long. Yeah, and uh, in our neck of the woods, we had the opportunity yesterday to adopt our daughter so we can officially share her name. We don't have to put a weird line through her eyes in pictures anymore. There's lots of cool stuff. Nobody's going to tell us how to be parents, I guess, or not as many people, I'm sure. There we will still will. Be, yeah, yeah. there always be people with <laughs> unsolicited opinions. Uh, and you just got back from a two-week trip, is that right? Yep, two weeks off the grid completely, uh, going for moose and caribou. And so every time I get done with that, and I get back, it feels very satisfying if I have meat, which we do this year, but it also feels like my life is in shambles. I've got a pile of gear about as tall as I am in my garage. It's covered in blood and dirt and smells like dirty socks, but I got a full freezer, and uh, so we're happy and blessed. That's awesome. That. Do you have any idea how much meat total? Do you guys weigh it out? I do, yeah. A, our moose this year ended with 480 pounds of cl- clean meat. Most, mm-hmm. of, most of that's ground up, and the caribou was about 70. So that's a big moose and a small caribou, but yeah, we ended up with about 550 pounds of meat split between a few families. Man, that's awesome. Cool. Okay, well, today on the podcast, uh, we're going to be discussing deacons, the diaconate, to use a more formal word. Uh, Ian and I have both processed through a book together. We'll talk about the name of that book and the author and recommend it to you, the listener, if you'd like to learn more. If you're just tuning into the podcast, I would remind you that uh, last week was a mailbag episode, just me solo Q&A. We worked through the majority of the questions that we have at this point. And so looking ahead, you know, the next 12 to 14 weeks, we'll probably do another one of those episodes and would love to receive questions and comments from you, the listener. So I know we say it every week. We'll say it again today at the end of the episode. But please, if anything has come to mind that you would like further clarification on regarding a sermon series, your personal time in the Bible, ministry in general, culture, my life, the life of another person in our church that you'd like me to interview, anything like that, we would love to receive your recommendations. So Ian, if we can start with you, if you could kind of kick us off here with what's been going on at True North with our deacons, if you're able to give a little bit of history even of what brought us to having this conversation in the middle of a bunch of other changes in 2021. Uh, And then if you can mention the book and talk to us a little bit about where we go from here as far as church members. Yeah, so we've talked actually before on the podcast about how it's hard to do all these things well when you look at what a church should be doing, and deacons has been one of those for us. I think every year we get together as elders and we go, man, I don't think we're doing our deacons justice, and I I think we could be be doing better in this area. And so this is the year that came to fruition, and so behind the scenes we've been going through a book with some candidates, which uh, if you've been attending True North, you now know those candidates. They've got a video up, and those people are introduced, so you should know who those are, along with our three active deacons that we have already um, to present the new candidates to our church to be voted on. And so we've been going through a book, which has been really helpful. That book is, uh, it's not very creatively named, it's called Deacons by Matt Smethurst, and it's part of that Nine Mark series, which we've uh, gone through and have at our church some of those other books that go through different parts of church Mm -hmm. life and um, topical issues. And it's not a long book, but it has been really valuable to me and I think to you and the rest of our uh, deacons and deacon candidates. 
And so that's been going on behind the scenes. We've been discussing it with uh, those people, our future diaconate. And um, so I thought it would be great to just sort of open that up on the podcast and discuss of what we've been learning and what our vision is and uh, be able to share. Yeah. And if I can jump in here too, you mentioned that we have three current deacons as well. Uh, in the interest of continuity, we asked those three deacons to participate in the same training to work yes. through the book all together. Um, prior to our time in this book, <clears throat> though our deacons, I believe, have been as faithful as they've been expected to be, they've never failed to meet expectations, any of them, yep. um, we haven't had a lot of expectations for them recently. And we thought that it would be important if we're going to be redefining terms and even restructuring the way that deacons relate to the elders, the way that they relate to a typical covenant member, and the way that they relate to each other. If we're going to ask our current deacons to continue to serve in that context, they need to be up to speed as well. And so it's important for you, the listener, to know, especially if you're a member of True North, uh, we are not, because we don't believe we have to, we are not requiring those current deacons who have already been voted in by the church to be re-voted upon, nope. because we don't question their qualifications. Uh, in a very healthy way through this process, in the last about 18 months, uh, we had two different deacons for different reasons decide that they needed to take a step back from the diaconate. Neither of them were disqualified from our perspective, but just did not feel that they could complete the responsibilities as given. And, and that was a conversation we wanted to have with each of our candidates as well, was to make sure that they understood exactly what we would want them to be doing. We went through the training, their candidacy, similarly to how we handle elders. Uh, we kept them private from the church in the short term so that we could train them and let them know what was expected. Uh, thankfully, I think we chose the right people. You as members um, nom nominated the right people because we didn't have any candidates decide to bow out uh, before we came into public candidacy. And so those six or seven candidates we did announce on Sunday, uh, and then we've got the three more standing deacons. So we're looking at potentially having a team of 10 right out of the gate in early 2022. Uh, and we're excited as elders. We've already got a lot of ideas, and the deacons themselves have come up with a lot of, or the candidates, I should say, have come up with a lot of ideas about how they'll be able to serve the church. Yep, I'm excited as well, and uh, I think in digging into it, it was a good decision to have those existing deacons go through this process with us, because we'd be using language and talking on terms, and they would have no clue what we're talking about. So um, this this process has got me excited, and I think we're all sort of unified as far as what we want to do going forward, lots of different ideas, and I'm really excited what the future is going to be. Philip, as we discuss deacons, I think the appropriate place to start would be to look at Scripture. So I just wanted to start there. Um, what are the primary Scriptures that define or deal with deacons? There's not a whole lot in the Bible. It's it's uh, limited as far as the scope of what we can draw in. So would you go ahead and highlight those for us? Yeah, there's two passages in the New Testament that speak to the office of deacon directly. And as I think is almost always the case in the church, uh, the office is established out of a need, and then later, the Apostle Paul comes back and describes the definition of what a person needs to do and some of their qualifications as well. And so, in chronological order, beginning in the book of Acts chapter 6, Acts is the book immediately following the Gospels, Jesus has just ascended, the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> pardon me, the Holy Spirit falls uh, from heaven into the lives of believers, uh, the Spirit of God indwelling humanity for kind of the first time in this sense, broadly, uh, corporately. And so the church grows really fast, and out of the need of some of the members of the first church in Jerusalem, uh, there is a, a calling together of the whole body of believers, which we believe represents congregational rule, which is the polity model that we use at True North, under the leadership of, at this point in church history, the apostles. We believe the apostles passed down their authority to local church elders, 
And so we as elders would stand in a similar position, gathering the church together to nominate deacon candidates and then allowing the church to charge those people should they find their lives to be qualified. So that's part of why we've gone through the process the way we have. I want to just read from Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, down through about verse 7. This is the story of the origin of the very first deacons in the church. The Bible says this, Now in these days, the the days of the early church, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because the Hellenists' widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. In other words, the Roman Christians, the Roman Jewish Christians, were being neglected by the ethnically Jewish Christians culturally Jewish Christians. So within the earliest church, there were Jews who uh, might have fallen under the Sadducee party in Jesus' day. Uh, Then there were the Pharisees who were more purists about Jewish nationalism. The church in Jerusalem is largely Hebrews. There are a few Hellenist people that have come to Jerusalem for different reasons, some of them for Passover, and then they were there for Pentecost, and they decided to just stay and be connected to the church. And so there's a racial divide here. There's a cultural divide here. And the minority group approaches the majority group and says, look, when you guys pass out food, when you take care of the women whose husbands have died, you're not really doing a good job with the Hellenist widows. We don't know if that's because they they weren't aware of them or they didn't care, or maybe the Hellenist widows were just harder to find because they didn't have permanent residence. We don't know. But in verse 2, the 12, who are the apostles, summon the full number of the disciples. So everybody in the city, which at this point is about 8,000 people at least, which is crazy. The first church was a megachurch. Uh, and they say to the, the disciples, say to the, the gathered body, it is not right that we, the disciples, should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good reputation who are full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said, what the disciples said, pleased the whole gathering, and they chose these seven men, Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And these they set before the apostles, they prayed and laid their hands on them, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests even became obedient to the faith." So this is the introduction of the diaconate, though there is never the word deacon used in this passage. Uh, The idea of service is what the word deacon, diakonos, means, is to be a servant or to serve another person. And not to do that in the sense of being an employee in a household, but in the sense of being a person who probably has a lot of rights that they're laying down in order to prioritize another person. So that's the initial standard that we looked for, was that spirit in our deacon candidates. Could we identify people in the body who, without any formal training, had seemed to really embrace lowering themselves in order to lift up other people? And then from there, we have to go to uh, 1 Timothy. In the verses that immediately follow in 1 Timothy 3, the the definition and expectations of elders, uh, Paul then explains the second office of the church, deacons. And I want to read through verses 8, excuse me, through 13, and I have a note uh, based on uh, verse 11, but I'll speak to that in just a minute. Deacons likewise, this is Paul writing in 1 Timothy 3.8, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first, and then let them serve as deacons, if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. 
The translation that I'm using that our church typically uses is the English Standard Version, and the ESV does something in verse 11 that, from my perspective, is not the absolute best choice in translation. Verse 11 reads like this, their wives likewise must be dignified, but there's a note there. If you were to follow that note in your Bible, it would tell you that the word there, T-H-E-R, is not there, T-H-E-R-E. It's not present in Greek. So in Greek, the verse reads, wives likewise, or a better translation of the word that's translated to mean wives is women. So in Greek, the way that these verses are ordered is there are expectations for uh, clear conscience and not being greedy and not wanting dishonest gain laid out for men. And then in verse 11, those same expectations are laid out for women. And then when we get into verse 12, where the, the Bible talks about deacons each be the husband of one wife, the language there allows that to be applicable to men and women both. And so from for this reason, this has been sort of a debate in church history, but not really, only recently uh, has it been something where people have come down hard and said women cannot be deacons. Uh, we believe that the Bible does give uh, plenty of evidence and reason for women to be allowed into the office of the diaconate. Mm-hmm. Again, we don't have a social agenda, so it wasn't about a percentage, it wasn't about trying to platform women over men, anything like that, but we truly believe we have some women who are deacon candidates, and we currently have a lady who is serving as a deacon who are qualified in the very same way that a man would be based on these scriptures. Yes, and uh, just on that note, also pointing to Phoebe, who was listed as a servant or a deacon of the church, and there's some debate about that as well, because the word deacon means servant, but um, we would also look to that and say that's a good example of a faithful female deacon in the Old or the New Testament. Absolutely, and I think it's important to note that in churches where the primary office of church leadership, elders, is not functional, is not working the way that it's supposed to, oftentimes the deacons tend to sort of blur the line between mm-hmm. the biblical elder and the biblical deacon. In the book Deacons by Matt Smathers that we've used, he does an excellent job of explaining all the different ways that deacons can be uh, non-functional from a a biblical perspective. And one of those models is when the deacons of the church are pseudo-elders, are not actually given the authority of elder, are never really uh, allowed into that responsibility by the church, yet feel that they can kind of go as far as they want to as long as they don't step on the pastor's toes too much. At True North, we have an elder-led polity, and so we believe that when the office of elder is rightly held only to biblically qualified men, then there is no threat of a woman participating in a pseudo-elder position by being a deacon, because our deacons only do the work of deacons and do not do the work of an elder. So Ian, let's get a little more specific here, because the scriptures are helpful as a starting point, but in the practical life of the church, what makes a good deacon? And to the same note, what makes a poor deacon... Uh, and if you can make that distinction, maybe get a little practical with us at the end on, on what a good deacon actually does. Yeah, absolutely. So the book actually spent some time on what is a poor deacon. I think we've got a lot of examples to draw on. And I think, you know, to sum it up, I think the biggest mistake we might be making in, in finding deacons for the church is just finding somebody who is good at something or who is winsome or who is already involved in the church and saying, well, okay, that person's there, let's just make them a deacon. And maybe they have budget skills or maybe they've got uh, you know, a big toolbox and can fix things or they're just a capable business person or whatever. 
And those are all valuable things at a church, but it is definitely short-sighted to just make somebody a deacon because they're there. And when the Bible clearly lays out some qualifications and some roles, it is good for us to observe those qualifications and roles. And so that might be the wrong way to look look at uh, how, how we add deacons or who might be a good deacon. The book used this example, and uh, and I just love the analogy, so I'm going to bring it up here, but they didn't have shock absorbers in New Testament times. I think it might be in the Bible if they did have shock absorbers in New Testament times. I'm not trying to rewrite the Bible, I promise, but um, Matt Smathers used the analogy of deacons as shock absorbers, and I just really love that analogy in that deacons are people who make the church ride go smoother, that whenever there are bumps in the road, and there are, we all know that there are, if you've been involved in church life ever, you know that there are bumps in the road and rocky rocky stuff that you'll have to navigate. Deacons are, are always the first ones there. And so when we look to that, old or the New Testament example in Acts, the issue was that the Hellenist widows were not getting fed, and the deacons were there to absorb that shock and to serve those people, to do it in a humble way, and to keep the church going. And, you know, that's the function of shock absorbers, right, is that you're going in a direction and you don't want the bumps to uh, put you off of the direction that the church is going. You want to keep it going. And so I, I just always think about that one one aspect that makes the analogy a little more real to me is two years ago, 2019, I was biking on a bike without shock absorbers down a steep hill, and I fell over the bars and broke my wrist. And I I can't help but thinking some shocks might have helped me there as well. Uh, I did not get where I was going. I ended up in the hospital. So, um, But I I think that analogy for me, thinking about people who will will be there, who when bumps come, they will be people who absorb those bumps rather than amplify and make them worse. And then also people who will be in it. You know, shock absorbers are not the pr- most pretty part of the bike. If you if you know about bikes, you got to clean them and oil them because they're down there in the dirt. And I think deacons likewise will be leaning into conflict um, in a healthy way, serving people who maybe don't get a lot of attention or not the first person you'd think that, oh, the church should highlight this person. I was even blown away. The book highlighted an example that really got me thinking about people who had been excommunicated from the church, that that would be a good thing for a deacon to lean into. If somebody's been excommunicated from the church, that the deacons would be the first person to say, we want you back as part of this body. How can we minister to you? So talk about reaching out to people who are scorned or outside the loop. So I I think on a practical aspect, deacons are sort of doing the day-to-day dirty work of serving and loving and protecting unity, and you heard some of that language on on the video uh, on Sunday from our deacon candidates. They were using that language because it's biblical and because um, that's what we've been studying through. So uh, when we look at deacons, I love to see uh, that example used, and that is who we should be looking for rather than just skills. Yeah, and to your point about excommunication, um, I've been a part of that, not at True North, but at the church that my wife and I served at in Kentucky, uh, unfortunately. We actually had a deacon who decided to make some really poor decisions about his family, to try to abandon them at different points, and then to come back and apologize and act like nothing had happened, and just a lot of passivity, passivity that led into that situation, and then passivity was sort of his method to handle it. And I think that once the general congregation came to find out about the circumstances, even though there was never a formal church business meeting in which he was necessarily 
excommunicated, he was a pariah. I mean, he didn't, when he came back to church, people knew what had happened and didn't know how to interact with him. And I think that having a deacon who's equipped and able to participate in the reconciliation of a person like that and almost be commissioned by the body to do that really well, it does two great things. One, it allows the general membership who don't have the training and may not be qualified and who knows even how mature of a Christian they are to not feel the pressure to have to individually reach out to this guy and kind of tiptoe around the conversation and not know, are you okay? Are we okay? You know, Did the elders handle this the right way or not? Uh, those are all fine questions to ask, but that can be a lot of pressure to put on the average member. And then two, I think it allows a person like a deacon who's commissioned by the church to participate in the reconciliation of another person to have a lot more confidence and to not worry, are people going to see me talking to this guy and think that I'm on his team or that I'm against the elders or you know, that maybe I don't understand what's going on here or I'm immature. And, and for a person like that to be able to, uh, like you said, to lean into, to step into the life of somebody who's going through a really, really challenging time that the church has somewhat, well, you could argue they put it on themselves and the church is just responding. But if the church is doing right and not being passive, they are increasing the load on that person a little bit by not just ignoring that person's sin. I think that's such a blessing to that deacon, to the church, to the elders, and to the individual. And so uh, I think it's a great example, one that we wouldn't think of a lot. And if that's an extreme end of the spectrum, anything short of that is going to be of immense benefit too, right? That same deacon's going to be able to minister to people who are sick. That same deacon's going to be able to help coordinate things like meal trains. Or I think of a couple in our church right now who just had uh, their daughter premature. And we have a couple deacon candidates working together to help yep. make sure that that family's taken care of. So it's a little more of the, the practical side of things. Yeah. And, you know, I've talked about it a lot in church life and in life group about how sometimes there's these easy needs to be met, right? Like, uh, you know, somebody's hungry and you feed them. I don't I don't mean to devalue that, but I think that sometimes in church life we have this image of the perfect person to help and they're really just they just need one little thing to get back up on their feet and make it easy. Um and I think looking to that early church example, it's possible that you could have thought, gosh, these Hellenist women are just, you know, they're nagging us and why are they bothering us? And they could have been, you know, people that in the church everyone goes, All right, here he comes, like, you know, don't don't invite them to anything. <laughs> uh, and I, I think as we've gone through this book and thought and prayed more about deacons, people who you already see leaning into those people who who are not the first person you think about, they're not the easy people to help, you know they're having hard conversations, you know they're dealing with people who are sometimes difficult, those are the people we want as deacons, right? Not the people who are going to do the easy stuff or be the cool kids or, um, you know, every church has those and um, and we love our cool kids too. But I'm so glad that our deacon candidates, and I believe we do have good deacon candidates who are already looking out for people who are in some ways the the Hellenist widows of our, our day and in our church. So uh, I think that's another good metric to use when we're looking at deacon candidates and who should be a good deacon. Um, Philip, I want to kind of pass it over to you because um, when we think about the local church and church polity and how uh, the church structure works, we alluded to it a little bit when we were studying the scripture, but how does that office of deacon fit into the local church, church structure and maybe specifically our local church? And what does it look like to have a healthy diaconate in a church? Yeah, so I'm going to appeal to uh, Matt Smethurst again, the author of the book that we used as our reference point. Um, he, beginning on page 84, if, if you decide to pick up a copy of this book, this would be a good place for you to highlight, put a bookmark. Um, he talks about the key differences between elders and deacons, and I think it's the most clarifying and helpful distinction to make. Because a person, a, a deacon is never less than a church member, 
they would be expected to be more than a church member. However, a deacon is not just a halfway point between member and elder. That's a wrong way to measure what a deacon is. They're not just a pre-elder or, well, this woman, if she was a man, would be an elder, but because she's a woman, she can only be a deacon. That's not the way that we view this at all. That undersells our women. That also undersells what it means to be a deacon totally. Um, And so I just want to read briefly from page 84. Matt Smethurst says this. He says, No doubt the seven deacons in Jerusalem had to organize, had to make decisions, had to delegate, and even had to lead the relevant individuals in the distribution of food. If elders serve by leading, deacons lead by serving. I want to read that again. If elders serve the church by leading the church, deacons lead the church by serving the church. He says, nonetheless, deacons are never presented as spiritually authoritative leaders over the whole congregation. Elders alone are identified by their calling to exercise oversight. And then he gives a litany, excuse me, he gives a litany of scriptures that illustrate that point. He says, members, likewise, church members are called to emulate deacons, but they are never told to obey deacons. And that's a distinction. Mm. Uh, He says, this is not, excuse me, this is emphatically not to say that elders do ministry and deacons do not do ministry. On the contrary, the task of elders is to, quote, equip the saints, that's Ephesians 4, for the work of ministry. The members are responsible for executing the mission. In terms of emphases, though, and then he references a person named Jamie Dunlop, he says this framework is helpful. First, elders lead ministry. Second, deacons facilitate ministry. Third, the congregation does the ministry. So I think at True North, for a while, we've had a good handle on elders lead ministry and the congregation does ministry. But we haven't had that middle level. Yep. And that's, I think, a pretty key factor in in why we've needed to reevaluate our vision, why we've needed to reevaluate the ministry partnerships that we have in the city. There's no small coincidence between the number of people who are on the vision implementation team who are now also deacon candidates. Yes. Uh, some of that speaks to their heart and their willingness to volunteer and involve themselves in something like the vision team. But some of it also, I think, communicates a clear need that we need not to maintain a vision team forever and ever. We need to maintain a biblical body and office, deacons, to help the elders facilitate ministry with the members. If you're a new member of our church or if you've never really been to our church before, you're listening from somewhere else, we have sort of an unwritten policy that we try very hard not to have our elders and staff drive all of the ministry in the church. And at times, that's meant that we're not doing a lot of ministry. And it's funny because people are irritated at that concept, but it doesn't always lead them to actually begin participating in ministry or leading ministry. And so I believe we have a lot of willing members who want to be doing ministry. We as elders believe, like the uh, apostles in Acts 6, our primary call is not to wait tables. Not that we won't help with that, but that can't be how we spend most of our time, most of our hours Those things need to be given over to the preaching of the word, the theological positions of the church, the shepherding of the flock, prayer, those things that are unique to the office of elder. And so we need deacons to be able to fill that, not intermediate role, again, in the sense that they're not halfway to uh, an elder, between an elder and a member, but that they do function as deputies. That's another piece of language that I found found helpful in the book. Um, And so the office of deacon fits into the local church as... Um, I would say team builders. We've tried to emphasize with our deacon candidates that they can't just be team leaders, 
because as the church grows, there's just eventually we're going to need to have a hundred deacons or something like that, and there were only seven in a church of eight thousand uh, in the New Testament. So, at, at least at the beginning, so we don't want to necessarily build something that has to constantly be scaled that way. But we want to help our deacons understand that their responsibility is to hear from the elders where are we headed, and which direction do we want to go, what's our destination, and then the deacons help us get everybody in the car, get their bags in the car, get the car on the road, get the car to the destination. Um, and I think that the candidates who we have are not only willing to do that, but are really eager to participate in that. Yeah, and what I've noticed as uh, our church has grown and matured is that oftentimes there is, in any healthy organization, there is some sort of bridge between the mission and the leadership and the vision for what the organization does and sort of the boots on the ground that actually do the actual work. And there is a lot in between. And oftentimes that space has been occupied by either church members who just are uh, have goodwill and want to do the work, and some of those church members are now deacon candidates, or elders who uh, have the vision and then execute the vision themselves and build the team. And that might be functional in a church of 100 people, it quickly becomes not scalable as the church grows, and we've even received that feedback so uh, from church members. And so I'm excited to have people filling that intermediary position, um, not in terms of authority, but in terms of just accomplishing the mission. It's very needed, and I, I think that uh, we've got a lot of space for that here. Yeah, and from my perspective, you know, in the in the six or so years that True North existed before I arrived there was a relatively high amount of turnover among even elders. And I think that some of that may have been the drain and the load of having to fill both offices without knowing that you were doing that. And not just the spiritual oversight and leadership, but to a very high expectation from church members that you were going to be building teams, hosting trainings, coordinating events, being the contact person for the elementary school where your group served or the soup kitchen where your group served. And it's not wrong, again, to participate. A, a deacon and an elder are both never less than a church member. They should be more, but they're never less than that. So that means that we still participate as church members at times. Um, but not having anybody to turn to who's trained and equipped to handle the more pragmatic side of the needs of the church really well uh, is just a burden. It's a load. Um, Matt Smethers says in the book a couple of times that uh, the, I think he calls it the incessant need or something like that. There's an element of physical needs that never stops mm -hmm. in, a, in a local church. And especially if the teaching is good and the leadership is good, you're going to draw more and more people who are going to have more and more problems. And the diaconate help to not just help, but really cover those kinds of things uh, in a way that's still excellent, still highly accountable, things like that. So um, Ian, as we get closer to December the 2nd of this year, when we're going to be voting on these individual deacon candidates... Talk to us a little bit about the role that our church members will play between today and then. We have about four months. Um, how should we think about potential deacons? Are, are there conversations we should be having? Should we pick up this book and read it ourselves? How would you recommend a church member take a part in getting ready to, to vote on these deacons with confidence? Yeah, so I, I want to take this opportunity to call our church members to some responsibility. If you're a church member, you're a covenant member, in our constitution and bylaws, you have a lot of power and you have a lot of responsibility for ultimately electing these deacons. The process, uh, just to be clear on what we're doing, is your elders are recommending these deacons, but we all have just one vote when it comes to how we actually elect them. That is up to the church body to elect them. 
Um, I suspect that it's going to go smooth because I think we've got great candidates, but just know that if you're a church member, a covenant member at True North, you've got a big responsibility and role in this. Now, I know that on the practical side of it, um, there's an element of trust, right? That if you trust your elders and you've seen uh, these deacon candidates be active in the church, it's probably not necessary for you to interview all nine of them uh, to make sure they meet the qualifications of deacon. Uh, and so if you've not seen anything that would question that and and the people in your life group or in your community know also know those deacon candidates and there's no sort of red flags, I, I don't feel like you are obligated to, to do that. However, and uh, I'm sorry, not sorry to the deacon candidates, but that would be appropriate if you wanted to interview your, your deacon candidates. If you just don't know them and you want to get to know them better. They are putting themselves out there and saying, I'm opening myself up to scrutiny for people to say, do I meet these qualifications? Do you think I would be a good deacon? Do you think I serve the church well? And so it is wholly appropriate for a church member to want to meet with those deacon candidates, to ask them questions, to send them an email. Um, They are available to do that, and that's part of the responsibility of being a deacon. So if you have questions um, about our deacon candidates, or about their qualifications, it is a good thing to go ask them directly. And you don't need to uh, get our permission first. You're getting it now from the elders on the podcast to go talk to those deacon candidates directly and get to know them better. That's right. And we tried uh, to think through the distribution of our deacon candidates a little bit. We didn't want to get in the way of the Spirit's work, but it worked out well that I think only one life group has more than a single deacon candidate. For that reason, it's pretty likely that your life group has a deacon or deacon candidate uh, as a member of your life group, and that would be a great conversation to have at life group sometime. Reach out to your life group leader, ask them, hey, can we talk to our deacon candidate? And then ask that deacon candidate their perspective on the other candidates. They've been in training with these guys, they've heard the conversations, they've heard the excitement. You don't have to take our word for it at all, and I think one candidate being able to speak to the qualification and ability of the other candidates, I mean, that's somebody who's been in these trainings, who's spent hours and hours and hours with the other candidates and and would be able to clarify strengths and potential and hopes and how you guys, how the team might potentially fit together and how they might function. The other thing I would say about going to deacons directly, especially as our deacon candidates become full-time deacons, is... I think oftentimes if people have ministry work that needs to be done or uh, challenges that they're facing, their first impulse is to go straight to you, Philip. Like, you'll get an email. I know if some church member has a problem. And I just want our church members to know that our deacons are going to be empowered to do ministry, to solve problems, to uh, address some of the spiritual concerns people have. And so not that the elders are not available to talk or or be available to, to do any of those things, but you might get it done quicker and better if you go directly to one of these deacons or deacon candidates. So for example, if you're looking at um, this fall and, and there's a, a ministry you want to participate in, I'm just thinking a couple years ago, a church, uh, a church attendee at one of our life group members came and said, hey, we should really participate in this Thanksgiving blessing, and we should uh, give uh, money, and we should volunteer to fill boxes for people who get Thanksgiving meals uh, for those who are needy. That is an absolute deacon-level conversation. Not that I didn't enjoy being a part of that, but you, a deacon would be empowered to put that together, gather volunteers, get the funding in place to do something like that. So as we go forward, just know that 
you will likely have an easier time getting things done going directly to one of these deacon candidates. We plan on giving away responsibility and authority to empower these people. And so I think as a church member also, you need to look to these people as allies. So if there's ministry that you want to do that maybe you feel like you're not equipped to lead on your own, Find one of those church members who is going to be an ally to, to, or I'm sorry, one of those deacon candidates who would be an ally to you. Um, so if you want to do ministry on base, maybe you look to Tom Carlson, who is an officer in the Air Force, and say, he would be a really good person to help me uh, do something on base or deal with an issue we're having there. We, we've been intentional. Those deacons are all around the church in various aspects, in various circles, and, uh, and I think I would look to them uh, to do some of that work for you. Okay, so lastly, uh, I just wanted to ask, maybe as a church member, you're looking at, listening to this podcast, you're looking at what we're doing, and you're thinking, okay, have we been doing deacons wrong so far? Are we changing what we're doing? Uh, Are we changing what we're doing when it comes to deacons? Are we changing our church polity? There is a bit of transformation here. Would you just sort of clarify for that, Philip? Where were we? Where are we going with deacons? Uh, are we changing our constitution? There's a lot of talk of, of doing things different. So clarify some of that for us, please. Yeah, absolutely. So our constitution and bylaws already allow for the office of deacons. I would say they almost require that we have deacons the way that the church is set up and supposed to function. So on one hand, no, it's not that we've done anything wrong necessarily. I would say just frankly, in the last three years, we just haven't really done anything with our deacons. Uh, Our deacons have been faithful. We've had in the past deacons who helped us with audio and video on Sundays, deacons that helped us with the connect table, deacons that helped us set up and tear down communion on communion Sundays, a deacon who helped set up coffee every week when we were at Clark Middle School. When you're hearing all those examples, you're thinking, man, those are really pragmatic, practical, and you're right. I think that to some degree, we fell into one of the fallacies of how you appoint deacons, which is you just find people with a skill set that they'd probably get paid for in the secular world, and you say, hey, can Mm -hmm. you be a deacon and do it at the church for free? Uh, And that's not underselling those people's character. I think all of those individuals and volunteers were there for the right reason. They weren't there to score points with God. They certainly weren't there to boast or build their own kingdom. Uh, However, we've come to realize that if the deacons are going to have the full and robust uh, office that we believe they're supposed to have, we do need to restructure their expectations a little bit. So In brief here, um, we foresee the deacons, once the deacon candidates are voted upon uh, in December and the deacons are able to sort of get together a couple of times in 2022 and and brainstorm some processes, they'll probably meet regularly on a schedule. There will probably be a chair of the deacons who will have no additional authority but will be responsible to help communicate with the elders, to process notes, to pass up needs to us. Our hope as elders is going to be when people come to us with a need that's not pastoral, uh, to be able to send those people to a deacon, to the deacons, let the deacons brainstorm, come up with some recommendations and plans, still potentially loop us in and probably do more of that in the short term as they're getting used to their roles and responsibilities. But as they hit a groove, these are spirit-filled Christians. These are people who love Jesus and are going to be just fine without needing us to, to look over their shoulder and micromanage them. And so way down the road, the deacons may stop working quite so much as a as a group and and may begin to break off into different ministry areas and oversee and help form teams. Uh, But I believe that even in that setting, there will always be times and places where the full deacon body will come together to pray for needs, to, to update each other on how different members are doing, members who maybe have fallen away or we haven't seen in a while or who are dealing with immense pressure because of life circumstances. 
And then those deacons will be able, by way of their chairperson, to pass some of those pastoral needs up to us as elders. Likewise, we as elders will be able to call on the deacons if we've identified an issue that needs deacon attention and be able to commission them to put together a task force in the short term, build a team, build a committee, get the need handled. These are all things that we've done. So we feel like we can probably train deacons. We've spent plenty of time working on it ourselves. And Ian, if you don't mind, just speak a little bit to uh, some of the history and maybe how what I'm describing would be a, a, a change compared to what we're used to. Yeah, I think you you pretty much hit it when you said that we picked people who were already doing work in the church and doing it well. And so I believe that as I've looked back and thought about our deacons of the past and the deacons we currently have, all of those people have met the qualifications biblically of deacons. They're spirit-filled Christians who are, uh, I think, meeting all of those check marks that we see uh, in First Timothy. However, I think that the mistake from a leadership aspect was just picking them because they are doing good work. So if somebody is doing good work and saying, okay, you're already setting up chairs, you're the deacon of setting up chairs, that is selling deacons short of what, uh, biblically, what sort of authority they have and what value they bring to the church. And so um, I hopefully this is just a shift, uh, not of qualifications, not of maturity, but a shift of leadership and saying, we're going to give a little bit more responsibility to these people. They're going to have more uh, spheres of authority where they're able to uh, accomplish things that otherwise maybe they didn't feel empowered to do. Um, and so hopefully hopefully we've been biblical and we'll continue to be biblical about the way we do it. But this, I think, would be a more in line with what we see in the early church. And that's what God prescribes for church models. And so that's what we're trying to do. That's right. So uh, as a reminder to you, the listener, if you are a member of True North or if you're in Anchorage and you'd like to learn more about this, uh, we'll be having a business discussion on November the 7th. That's a Sunday after our morning gathering. We'll meet in the basement of the First Baptist Church in Anchorage where we meet weekly. And we'll spend a little more time in detail with this. We'll put some things in writing to try to help you grasp and understand what we're expecting from our deacons. You'll also have an opportunity at that point to ask questions of us, the elders, or the deacon candidates themselves, or the standing deacons. Uh, On top of that, there will be a Sunday a couple of weeks after that in which I'll be preaching through a little bit of our church polity. It's covenant renewal season at True North, and so we like to lay out for our church why we do that every year, why it's good, and what we're asking of our folks who are willing to participate. And if you have any specific questions about this, you can certainly approach myself or Ian or Scott Belmore, our third elder, uh, on a Sunday morning or in another setting. If you'd like, you can email us uh, directly. Our emails are on the website, or you can email info, I-N-F-O at truenorthalaska.com. That's also the best way to let us know if you have other comments, other questions, if you'd like to participate in a future question and answer episode. Uh, we start compiling those questions as soon as the most recent question and answer episode is, is over, it's completed. So it's time to do that again. Uh, if you do decide to email us at info, uh, feel free to use the uh, subject line podcast question. That'll help us, help me in the future, come back and find those questions again uh, a little more easy. We get several emails at that email every day. Um, and church, you know, we hope this has been helpful to you as an encouragement. We love you. We're here for you. Uh, and let us know. Like we said, if you have questions or comments, uh, if we don't hear from you, we'll see you very soon. <laughs>